Welcome to our continuing 2018 educational webinar series. I am Katherine Short, Partnership Marketing Manager for FIRST Healthcare Compliance. At FIRST Healthcare Compliance, we help you with a comprehensive compliance management solution tailored to your business, a hospital, hospital network, healthcare practice of any size, billing company, or skilled nursing facility. As part of our complimentary educational webinar series, we bring you experts from around the country to discuss relevant topics in the healthcare industry. We are so pleased to have Carnamaro, CPC, RCC, CCSP, Ahima approved ICD-10 CM trainer and director of consulting at Coding Strategies Incorporated, located in Powder Springs, Georgia with us today. Karna's areas of expertise include billing and collections, coding and compliance, revenue enhancement and process improvement within medical billing firms, community and academic hospitals, as well as private practices. With coding strategies, Karna works closely with the ACR presenting at their annual meetings on the Economic Healthcare Panel. She routinely presents coding and documentation tips for both interventional radiology and diagnostic radiology to the National Healthcare Anti-Fraud Association, Healthcare Business Managers Association, and multiple state chapters for Radiology Billing Manager Association. Karna holds a Bachelor of Science degree from Weber State University, and she also holds the professional certification for Certified Professional Coder, Radiology Certified Coder, and Certified Coding Specialist. She is also an AHIMA-approved ICD-10-CM trainer. Karna is an active member of the Radiology Billing Managers Association, serving on the coding subcommittee and on the educational materials and products committee. She is also a frequent contributor of coding and compliance articles to the oncology practice management publication. A copy of the slide deck is available for download on the control panel. Feel free to submit questions in the question box of your control panel during the presentation. We will address questions at the conclusion of the presentation. Your PACOM and PMI CEU certificates will be emailed to you following the broadcast. Your PACOM certificate will come directly from PACOM and your PMI certificate will come from our email. There is no need to request either one. Additional CEU opportunities will be available to BC Advantage members following the live broadcast. See their website for details. A download of the handout is available with a button on the bottom right-hand side of your screen. So, Karna, welcome. Thank you. Coding Strategies welcomes the opportunity to continue to participate in your efforts to keep your clients informed. As you've mentioned, the focus today is on exploring compliance plans. This is a task that will never be finished, so I just wanted to set that expectation up front. An effective compliance plan is a live document. It'll adapt to the changes within your practice service lines, adapting to your process changes, and of course, adapting to the change within the industry. This is a great time of year for the topic. New code books have hit the streets, the final rules will be out shortly, and we can take time to refresh our existing plan and start the new year confident we're doing all we can to be compliant. It's important that I'm compliant with the necessary disclosures. 
Any codes used in this presentation are the copyright of the AMA. And while I share examples and offer suggestions, it is ultimately the practice with the physicians, risk management, and other stakeholders that will define and defend your coding and billing practices. Each organization has a comfort zone with risk, and some are lower than others. To set the stage, one constant source for information related to medical compliance plans is the OIG, or the Office of Inspector General, who has stated that there are seven elements of a good compliance plan. One is the written policies. Two is to, des to designate a compliance officer and a compliance committee. And I think that as we go through this presentation, you'll begin to understand that this is not a when you get around to a type task. Especially in a larger organization, you are familiar with having a true compliance officer. But in a small practice, it's not a bad idea to have a designated point of contact for all compliance as well. An effective compliance plan will include effective training and education, defining lines of communication. Notice that there's a specific call out to both internal monitoring and auditing. There will be standards and there will be a way and a path for responding promptly to detected offenses and undertaking corrective actions. The OIG has stated that implementing an effective compliance plan requires substantial commitment of time, energy, and resources by senior management and the billing company's governing body if you are, if you are representing a third-party vendor. But substantial commitment by senior management a compliance plan is not something that lives within the coding department. A compliance plan is an organizational wide process and, um, and document. A superficial program, programs that are hastily constructed or implemented without ongoing monitoring will likely be ineffective and could actually expose the billing company or practice to greater liability than no program at all. So it's very important as we embark on this new adventure for 2019 that it's not something we're just sticking our toe in the water. Are we committed from the top down? Do you have the support among your leadership to be able to enforce a compliance plan understanding that there may be um, risks that are identified and must be, uh, must be managed. It is important to realize that there's significant revenue on the table under the heading of audits, but there is just, there's more than just dollars. If you look at the 2017 semi-annual report, criminal actions against 424 individuals exclusion of 1,500 individuals from the federal health care programs, and civil action against 349 individuals or entities. Now, those numbers may seem small in the grand scope of the number of providers, the number of health organizations, but in the process of basically six months, to recover almost $1.46 does keep the industry motivated 
to continue auditing and to continue prosecuting those who do not have compliant billing practices. The healthcare industry operates in a heavily regulated environment. We know that. But an effective compliance program will help us mitigate those risks. It is not my intention to add fear to this topic, but it is mission critical that we do not underestimate the risks involved in a charge capture in a healthcare environment. This isn't something that happens to the practice down the street or the scam artists in another state. Prepayment reviews are increasing in favor with the payers as they request documentation before you're paid. That just increases the administrative burden on your practice and delays your revenue. ADRs, or those additional document requests, are also increasing as payments are suspended Again, moving the function of payer review to the front of the revenue cycle, delaying your reimbursement. If the documentation you share in the prepayment reviews or with the ADRs, if it's clean, if your documentation supports the code you're billing, your name can fall off that target list a lot faster. But questions within the documentation only increase your exposure. There are two terms that are frequently connected with compliance, but each has a distinct message. Fraud is an intentional deception or a misrepresentation that we know to be false, not believed to be true, knowing that the deception could result in an unauthorized benefit. So fraud is something that we do to get paid, for lack of a better word. Medicare has stated in the 2006 final rule that use of a modifier where it's not medically necessary in order to bypass a payment reduction constitutes fraud. And we all know how um, often we hear this attached with the modifier 59. Modifier 59 signifying that we have two procedures that would otherwise bundle into each other but we are going to bypass that edit and we will be paid with a modifier 59 as it does bypass the rest of the edits within a payer system. If the intent is solely to get paid versus communicating a separate and distinct service, we need to think about how frequent that might happen within our practice. Abuse is the second most common term. Incidents and practices that are inconsistent with sound medical practices. It may result in an unnecessary payment or an unintended payment, but it is more of just a byproduct of perhaps a sloppy billing practice or an uneducated billing practice. Some of the things that fall under the abuse umbrella would be medically unnecessary services, excessive charges, improper billing practices, or unbundled charges. At the end of the day, there's a primary goal for every medical practice, regardless of your specialty, regardless of your location, 
The primary function of a compliance plan is to find any missteps before they do, to demonstrate that you're doing all that you can to keep your billing practices consistent with the current guidelines. And that's a challenge. There's a lot of policies that change annually at best. We have some private payers that I know it feels like they change the policies every time I submit a claim. And while that's not exactly true, we do have a lot of, as the AHLA said, a lot of administrative burden and a lot of regulatory um, guidance to stay on top of. So with that goal, we have three primary objectives today. This entire webinar is, is focused on helping you perform a risk assessment. I'd like you to really think about what is going to be a risk in your practice, and then we can help developing an audit plan that addresses those specific risks. We also want to determine the best way to present the results from an audit to a variety of audiences. We may have results that need to be discussed with coders. We may have results that need to be discussed with physicians because it's documentation driven. We may find system errors that may require a change in um, our templates. We might need a change in how our system processes the claims. A lot of different options here as far as where we go with next steps. A risk assessment, like your compliance plan, is a living, breathing process. Once we identify what we believe to be a risk, then we have an obligation to create a policy and a procedure to mitigate that risk. How do I communicate to the physicians what they can and cannot carry forward from a prior note? How do I communicate to my coders which documents they can use to defend their procedure codes and their diagnosis codes? So that communication and that education is constant. And then, of course, I need to continue monitoring to make sure that the changes have been put into place. As I audit, I may find additional areas of risk, and that risk is going to lead to more procedures and policies and back through the entire cycle. As you participate today, I encourage you to have a note paper where you can continue to answer these questions. What would draw attention in a investigation? There are three that stand out from the investigations that are done at the DOJ level, the Department of Justice. Any allegations of patient harm, patient safety. Notice that it says it rises to the top of their investigation list. Allegations of unnecessary services being provided also at the top of the list. Potential high dollar loss to the program. So in other words, high dollar claims are going to go to the top of the list. They're going to audit the $50,000 claim before they're going to audit, you know, a $10 vena puncture. Does not mean that it keeps the low dollar um, services completely off their radar but it does not make them perhaps the top A priority. 
Which practices within your organization could have a potential harm to patients or un extra unnecessary services? What do you have now that may currently be um, considered or denied as medically unnecessary? We don't work in a vacuum. There are multiple sources that will help you know what is a compliant risk in your specialty. There are websites that offer these press releases and let us have the headlines. So whether it's the podiatrist, whether it's the oncologist, whether it's a medical biller or um, uh, evaluation and management services, we can search the DOJ press releases and identify those things for which other practices have been investigated. And it's a lot easier to learn from them than experience the pain ourselves. When you notice that a single topic is mentioned within an industry coding publication over and over and over and over, take note. Clinical Examples in Radiology has published in four separate issues covering four separate years, the documentation requirements for the ultrasound guidance. They would not be repeating that um, instruction over and over unless there is a specific reason, unless we're missing something. And when audits are performed, we frequently do not have the vessel patency documented. Watch the industry information, not just for the information, but watch it for the trends. And if your practice happens to be billing the 76937, somewhere between the fall of 2012, 14, 16, and the winter of 17, this should have been on our radar. Now, granted, we can't report these services in 2019 as the code set will not have the 76937 reported separately. And sometimes that is the result of simply recognizing the coding is, um, how do I want to say it? It's like it's an administrative burden on the payers to be doing this many audits. A lot of us will remember back a few years when they stopped allowing us, when Medicare stopped allowing us to bill for consults. Well, multiple years prior to that decision, they kept reminding us, here are the requirements, here are the things that have to be documented. And when audits after audits after audits continued to demonstrate a lack of compliance with those guidelines, it became easier for Medicare to simply not recognize the code. It becomes easier to simply bundle the service because it is reported more than 75% of the time with other services. These notices also come directly from the payer. I know that you're monitoring these sites and you have your top payers marked within the internet. But is someone looking at the trends, the repeated notices, simply for the sake of compliance? Medicare uh, may not be viewed as the friendly payer. And so I would typically take any time that they say a reminder to be a red flag. 
if we are doing urine drug testing, it's a reminder that this could be one of those areas of risk for noncompliance. It's one of those areas that we want to make sure we're monitoring within our practice if that is a service that we provide. Medicare has multiple places in which they will publish warnings to help us do a risk assessment. The NCCI policy edits are well known. We all know the CCI edits, what to do when a column one bundles into a column two. CCI edits are basically part of our coding software, part of our billing software, definitely part of a clearinghouse. However, there is also a free downloadable policy manual with clear instructions that are specific to Medicare. And it's interesting, look at the last line of the second paragraph. Physicians should follow the CPT manual instructions unless CMS has provided different coding or reporting instructions. And then if you hit down to about the middle of the last paragraph, CMS occasionally disagrees with the information in CPT Assistant. If a physician utilizes information from CPT Assistant to report services rendered to a Medicare patient, it is possible that the carriers may use different criteria to process the claims. So without the, with, throughout the NCCI policy manual, Medicare will alert us to areas that are different from the AMA. That is an area of risk to make sure that we are following payer-specific guidelines and that we have a mechanism within our system. If payer ID equals, then whatever, we um, are doing additional bundling, we're changing modifiers, and then from a coder perspective, are they aware of what specifically differs between Medicare and the CPT? So circling back to the beginning, the OIG, the Office of Inspector General, has an annual work plan with findings of past audits and instructions for payers as to what to watch for in the coming year. In other words, this OIG work plan gives us an idea of where they are focusing their audit resources, where they may put in a prepayment um, process or a prepayment review. This document is worth downloading annually, scanning, and noting those topics that are pertinent to your individual line of practice. These are topics that have been identified in the industry as risk areas. So if we are doing um, you know, any prolonged services, if we're doing any chiropractic services, if we have an independent lab, or any of the topics within the work plan, those are things we would want to have on our shortlist for auditing within our practice. This may be stating the obvious, but your billing department can be the best resource in your risk assessment. What combination of codes are frequently bounced? What services do the payer request additional information most often? And more importantly, when are you paid on an appeal. Now, that may seem odd because clearly being paid is a good thing, but it does leave a basic question in the payer's mind. 
if you had the data to support the service, why wasn't it submitted the first time? Where did you suddenly find that payable diagnosis? So trending and tracking denials at the procedure level by payer can be a very valuable data source for your risk management assessment. The short answer for any risk assessment is to remember our primary goal. Find it before they do. So your objective is to look at your practice in the same manner that a payer will look at your practice. I know historically a lot of us have audited 10 reports per provider or 10 encounters per coder. That may be a good monitoring, that may be a good maintenance, but it can also give you a very false sense of security if those 10 procedures are not on their radar. I was recently asked to audit a radiology practice. The physicians on the board wanted to know the accuracy of the coding department. So I was sent about 100 records. Well, 90% of those records were a one-view chest x-ray. Yes, that will generate a statistic that looks really good, but it will most likely not answer the question, that core question, about compliance and risk. Really take time as you generate your list and you continue to add to that list you've already started. Which services within your practice sort of make it a little nervous to code? What services are being performed by your physicians that we really struggle to get paid? What about the levels of service? What about supervision? and not just supervision for procedures, but what about incident two? What about our documentation on shared visits? Do we have an authenticated order for all services, not just the radiology and lab that goes out of the office? What about an order for those in-office um, nasal endoscopies? Are there areas of medical necessity for specific procedures in your practice? Is there such a short list of ICD-10 codes that are covered that there's a risk of people just using that list? Modifiers will always be on the risk assessment list. We should always be auditing those services with a modifier 25, modifier 59 anything that bypasses a payer's internal edits. Within your practice, your providers may be performing services that have very distinct CPT descriptions. There may be a complete and a limited code for a similar service. You may have things such as a simple laceration repair versus a complex laceration repair. Any service that has that distinct CPT code for a varying degree or a varying extent of the procedure should be on your radar. Notice the last thing on this slide. It really doesn't impact coding per se, but it's definitely part of the revenue cycle. And we all know that that 60 day payment or 60 day repayment on any credit balances, any overpayments, has taken a lot of attention 
in the last few months. And we want to make sure that that is on our risk, on our uh, risk management as well. So think about drilling down when we said levels of service. What does that really mean? What about the number of new patients per provider? Is there any risk within your organization of not following that three-year rule? It's easy for me to data mine the number of level four or level five office visits with single diagnosis that might just be a sign or symptom. Or conversely, for underpayment risk, level two with multiple diagnosis codes. There's a risk that the documentation may not support that all of those conditions were actively managed. If they were, the level two may not be appropriate. Number of procedures in a given week. Number of visits in a given day. Those types of things may flag. Review any of your add-on codes, each additional level, each additional vessel, correlation between the number of biopsy procedures, the number of injections, the number of procedures, and the guidance codes. I know that a lot of them are being bundled, but we do still have some that allow the guidance to be built separately. And that's one situation where Medicare differs from the CPT rules. So if that's a procedure done frequently within your practice, those are the things that need to be included in that 10 per. It's random, but it's a very targeted random. So step one is find examples of those things on your list. You want to query for that CPT code. You want to query for that modifier. You want to query for those diagnoses. Run a detailed encounter report for those combinations, those specific codes, and then you have your list of, of encounters to audit. We do want to make sure that we're taking into consideration any major changes within our practice. If we've just implemented a new EHR, well, I want to make sure I'm auditing current services. I know the payer can go back seven years. But I also have a defense if I can say, and today that's changed. And on this day, that process was changed. Obviously, we want to make sure that we are looking at the final claim submission after it's gone through our scrubbers, after it's gone through our clearinghouse. What were the final codes that the payer looked at? And that may or may not have been um, how it was originally coded. There is logic in the old adage, don't bite off more than you can chew. And that is going to be different for every practice, every organization. You have to take into consideration your resources. Now that does not mean we can say, oh, I don't have time, I don't have resources. But it will be a different scale than an organization that has a dedicated compliance department. Anything we find in an audit, anything we find while we're monitoring or during a review, we're going to have to do something about. And so I don't want to do a thousand chart review until I'm ready to take on the results of those thousand charts. From an OIG perspective, look at bullet number one, small but valid samples. Don't create a disclosure 
for by doing too many. There is a tool, third bullet down, called Rat Stats, and it is used um, at a higher level for anyone that is looking for a statistical valid sample. And it is a free software. You can just Google OIG Rat Stats and download it. If you're in a larger clinic, multi-specialty practice, you know, more than 10 providers, I personally use Rat Stats when I'm just trying to make sure I get a random sampling. So I can tell Rat Stats that I have, let's say, a thousand office visits, and I want to make sure it's truly random. So I can tell the system that I want 20 charts. And I can tell them that I have a thousand line items and it will come back and tell me to pull line 17, line 200, line 462. And then I know, or I have more confidence that this was truly a random audit. And I'm not just grabbing patient names I remember, or um, if it's not by provider, that I'm not leaning um, unduly on a specific provider or a specific coder. The fourth bullet again recommends or highlights the OIG recommendations. Small, valid, well-crafted samples go a long way. This is not something where more is better. Consistent, follow-up, um, active routine is better than volume. Keep it simple. Everyone can understand a simple random sample. Start with that. We do need to make sure that anytime we're auditing, anytime we're monitoring, that we use all of the available resources. Now, granted, the coders should have these resources up front, and the claims should have been, or the encounters should have been initially um, assigned with these tools. But it's more than the code set. There's the Insider's Guide, CPT Assistant, the Policy Manual we've talked about, pair websites. A lot of your specialty societies offer in-depth information that is valuable in setting up a coding policy, procedure, and part of your compliance plan. Two of those I just want to put on your radar, primarily because we are at the end of a, of a calendar year, which means new code books are out which means new guidelines and new explanations. The CPT Changes 2019 and Insider's View is a very valuable resource for larger practices or practices who are experiencing a significant number of changes within the code set in any given year. The Insider's View takes those new codes and explains the rationale for, for creating them also outlines the expectations for the documentation and the clinical um, vignettes for where those codes might be used. So if you see within your CPT book for 2019 that there are a substantial number of changes, let's say in behavioral health, and that is a service line for you, it is worth getting the addition and having that extra information about how to use these new codes appropriately. If you're in a surgical specialty that is um, a little more narrow, you know, you're only using the 40,000 codes or you're only using the 50,000 codes, you may have the same information from your specialty societies, but it never hurts to get the information from the source.
The CPG Assistant is embedded in a lot of our um, coding softwares, in a lot of our encoders, a lot of our optums. I'm not endorsing a product, I'm just sharing that this is something you may already have an, a subscription to. Make sure that you check within those softwares to see if it's an add-on button. And if it's not, then the publication is very important. Monthly issues, especially the January and February, where the books come out, the symposium is in November, everyone has that active discussion about the new codes and how they will be used, what about this situation, what about this scenario, and that CPT assistant at the first of the year offers a lot of those explanations and clarifies how we are to be compliantly using the CPT codes. We always want to remember sort of that, that hierarchy and balance our sources. I mentioned that your specialty societies may have additional information. When a specialty society is quoting the AMA, when their newsletter, such as Clinical Examples in Radiology, is co-authored by the AMA, the American College of Cardiology has several publications that are co-authored by the AMA. Anything with the AMA logo or quoting the AMA is considered authoritative guidance. The American Hospital Association, the AHA, gives us a lot of guidance on HCPCS, gives us a lot of guidance on diagnosis coding. Obviously, the insurance payer is authoritative guidance because of the golden rule. He who has the gold makes the rules. Beyond that, make sure and understand that the guidance is an opinion. That doesn't say we don't need the opinions. Not everything is black and white. But we want to make sure that within our coding policy manual, we're identifying those areas where this is based on the opinion of. This is based on standard medical practice in absence of black and white coding guidance. As I said, the coding policies, the coding conventions that we have in um, formal publications are not entirely black and white. There are nuances that may require an interpretation or an application for your specific practice. For example, Medicare has stated that medical decision making is to be the overarching criteria for the level of service for E&M. Okay, well what does that mean for your practice? Does it mean that the level of service must be supported by the history and the medical decision making when I need the two out of the three? That's what would be in a coding policy. Does the amount of the drug administered need to be in the procedure note by the provider? Or can it, for your practice, be documented within the nursing notes? Okay, then what documents are used to support the coding code, the um, CPT codes that are reported? These types of statements that need to be in a coding policy and procedure manual for your organization. How, how far down the clinical story do you assign diagnosis codes? We have space for 20. Does that mean we assign 20? Is each and every past history code assigned? Do we assign family history codes? Well, what is the documentation that's expected within the assessment and plan before chronic codes are assigned? These documents are valuable in managing the coding side of the house, ensuring that there's 
consistency so that the same record would be assigned the same code from two different people. But it's also very valuable when an external auditor comes in. I can disagree with your policy or your process, but I will try to audit to those expectations. If you have an internal guideline, I'm going to audit to that guideline. We may recommend that you change that guideline based on authoritative advice, but I can at least have something to start with. So your compliance plan will obviously include a formal chart review where you literally lay it down side by side. This is the code that went out on the claim. This is the code that can be defended by the documentation. Are the codes defensible? It may not be the best documentation. It may not be the most organized documentation, but are the codes defensible? Did we follow all of the coding conventions? If we've done bilateral breast biopsies, did I use the add-on code appropriately? Did I use the initial codes appropriately? And then obviously in any audit situation, we want to take the opportunity to make sure that we are not leaving money on the table. Did we miss any potential billable services? Those should be called out as well. Sometimes, especially in office visits, we become so focused on looking at those key components that we might miss that there was a debridement. We might miss that there was a nasal endoscopy performed. But you want to make sure that this is formally captured what was built and what was documented in a manner that is easy for you to generate some feedback, to generate those statistics and findings. It's very important that we report the findings in a consistent manner, that we use terms or categories or language that is understood and accepted by everyone. Some may use the term overcode, some may use the term undercode. Some compliance departments don't like those terms and they prefer to focus more on underdocumented, overdocumented. At the end of the day, I just like to know if the codes that went out, if the documentation agrees with the codes, can support the codes or not. In some situations, as you're going through an audit, you may decide that further review is required. I may need to research Anthem's policy on supervision in this situation, and I really can't agree or disagree at the time that I'm taking, uh, that I'm performing the audit. I also like to set out those cases where it's defensible, so I'm going to agree, but there are education opportunities to ensure that the documentation is as clean and organized as possible. I want to make sure that the next auditor would also agree and say not just that it's defensible, but that it is well supported. Numbers do not always tell the story. If you participated in the webinar that was previously hosted by First Health Care entitled, There Was an Audit, Now What? The next couple of slides will be familiar. Flat stats do not really convey the extent of the problem. If every mistake, if every one of those 31 disagrees, 
was a repeat of exactly the same mistake, oh, well, then there really isn't a risk to a degree of 18%, at least not in the same sense as if there were 31 different and distinct errors within that charge capture process. In that previous webinar, we talked about ensuring that the results are unique to a provider or unique to a coder. In other words, take those um, findings, those 31 disagrees, and identify the source. Physicians may or may not be um, assigning the codes. Coders may or may not be validating or verifying all codes. So we want to drill down to whatever the source is for assigning the codes. I, I can't be the only one who has a physician in an education session that says, well, I never do that. I always document that. Well, if the numbers are specific to them, it's going to be harder for them to tune out with that message. It can be very helpful, depending on the type of service that you're reviewing, to drill down even beyond I agree or disagree. So think evaluation and management. There are points within the guidelines that are a little subjective. Think about moderate versus high risk. That can be subjective. It can result in what we call in the industry one up, one down scenarios. When the level of service is one off, it may be a situation that is defensible, but just not ideal or best practice documentation. It is important to know when auditing E&M, if we have a one up, one down situation, or if we're reporting level fives and only a level two is supported. I appreciate that undercoding may not have that recoupment obligation from the payer, but most payers, especially CMS, view undercoding in the same light as overcoding. Both are an error. Neither follow the guidelines to report the service as supported by the documentation. If you've ever read the back of a HICFA, okay, I'll date myself and go back to the days we actually had HICFA, you know, actually typed those HICFAs, but the back of the form says that the physician who signed in that bottom left-hand corner, they attest to the fact that their documentation supports the codes on the front of that claim. So anything that is one up, one down, or completely off of the code submitted is an error. And we want to be able to report that, but we want to be able to report it in context as well. So as you think about next steps, can I repeat my primary recommendation? Do not bite off more than you can chew. If you find a discrepancy, you're responsible to resolve that discrepancy. And it may not be as easy as training one coder. As I said, it may be a system issue. It may be changing the behavior of someone who has always done it that way. Now, no one expects every discrepancy to be resolved in a very short window, but you will be needing a documented action plan you're going to need evidence that the practice is committed to a plan for avoiding that specific type of error in the future. As many compliance audits are quarterly or biannually, make sure that you've allowed time for resolution, 
before you expend valuable resources auditing that exact same topic. If I audit in January and I notice that the difference between you know, new patients and established patients was one of our top challenges, I'm going to have a training meeting and then I'm going to expect changed behavior. But if I really don't get those results out to the, to the providers until the fifth of the next month, I probably won't find a lot of value in auditing February. The day after I audit, or I mean the day after I train, a week after I train, I bet I will see behavior changes. But six weeks later, has the practice fallen back into old habits? That's when you want to do your follow-up. Not immediately after training. We want to make sure that the training sunk in and that the changes are, um, are permanent. Maintaining a compliance plan isn't a task that you get to when you can. It is not the other duties as assigned in your job description. These are some common challenges that every practice will face. As you design your plan for 2019 and what you're going to audit, which services, how many, how often think through each of these challenges and what step are you going to put in place to address the time? How are you going to put in an education plan that will address the variety of learning styles? How are we going to make sure that we have consistency if you have a, a practice or an organization that has multiple sites? This is a daunting task, but it's definitely one worth undertaking. A formal auditing plan is key to demonstrating compliance. However, one of the most effective ways to ensure, to ensure compliance is honestly to audit the work in the trenches real time every day. Make it part of your process not something that is done on the third Friday of every month. Every day, management should be able to pull even three to five reports, compare the documentation against what was coded. Within those three to five, if I find four discrepancies, okay, I need to drill down. One, it's probably a human error, and those are judgment calls that you'll make as you go through this. When you look at those three or five or whatever you decide, you can have the time to pull and walk through the process. That process is going to start with your coders. Even if the physician assigns the surgery codes, coders have a responsibility to review and validate. And I want to make sure that the coders are able to defend exactly which lines from the procedure note that led them to the decision to validate or assign a specific procedure code. And here's why. If your coder can take a highlighter and highlight that thought process to you, there's a good chance of being able to explain that logic during an external review. It may not be perfect. Again, the auditor may give you a guideline you didn't know about, but the code you assigned can be more reasonably defended if you can actually go through and identify which phrase to which code. It's also very helpful in an education process to sit down with the physicians 
because they may highlight a totally different phrase and educate us that it means the support for a different code. An active compliance plan requires active communication between the billing and coding team and the providers of the service. Now, there are cautions here. I have a mantra. I'm sure you've heard it before. Non-clinicians do not make clinical decisions. And non-clinicians do not prompt physicians how to document within a record. We can query for further explanation of what we read but we cannot say you need to document XYZ. Perhaps that wasn't even done. Just because, because the code requires the documentation of the biopsy of five lymph nodes, if only three are documented, I cannot go to a provider and say, you need to document the other two. Now, if you're in a bigger hospital environment, physician queries, or if you're coming from a hospital environment, physician queries are very common. A smaller office-based practice, it's not quite as formal, and we just stop the physician in the hall. But either way, the intent and the content need to be considered. Staff need to be trained on how to appropriately query the physician. It is very common, something I hear all of the time. It won't get paid unless. CMS requires this for reimbursement. Yes, yes they do. But that does not mean we drive the documentation by reimbursement guidelines. The website on the bottom here will share both appropriate and inappropriate examples on how to query physicians and how to address the key question. Where is that information documented? If someone on my team emails a physician and the physician responds to that email, clarifying the approach, clarifying the diagnosis, clarifying the fact that these are separate and distinct procedures, does that email become part of the official medical record? Is it just a business document that would not be released if the record were requested by an external party? Is the content of that email cut and paste into somewhere? Perhaps the comment field of the billing software. Okay, but if the data was truly anchored in patient care, vital to the care of that patient, change in diagnosis, clarification of the site of injection, wouldn't that information need to be in an addendum? What's the time frame for addendums within your practice? And to answer your question, yes, these are the types of things that are in your practice coding policy and procedure manual. Where is it documented? How and when a coder qu queries a physician versus just take what's there and move on? How long does a coder wait to respond before accepting the available documentation without a revision? These are the processes that we want in that manual. It's a lot more than just we follow industry standards. We follow the coding conventions of the CPT book. What I want to know are the how does your practice apply the, pro the principles and the guidelines. We want to make sure that the revenue cycle does not distract from the primary purpose of a medical record. It's a communication tool to care for the patient. 
to ensure the next provider in the treatment plan can step in and have confidence in what has been done, why, what was planned next. Uh, the last bullet, that's more of a space holder for me. I still am amazed at the number of records I receive as an auditor that are not authenticated. And I'm always told, oh, the signature is in this system. And if I look at it on the screen, that's accurate. But why didn't it print? And if it didn't print on the version that was sent to me as an external auditor, how does it magically appear on the version that's sent to the payer? Copies of medical records are flying everywhere. They're going to providers, they're going to patients, they're going to payers, they're going to attorneys. It's important that everything that leaves the practice is signed, dated, each page contains adequate patient identification so that if any of those pages get separated, someone can put that puzzle back together again. It's those little things that are also part of that manual. What documents are pulled for a review? What is my checklist that I make sure to go through before um, records are sent to a payer for an appeal? The end of the day, it really is how we approach things. We know the mantra, you can catch more flies with honey than vinegar, and there is truth to that. I also understand that there's the mantra, you can lead the horse to water, but you cannot make them drink. Your approach to key changes within this charge capture process will, to a degree, determine the success, or at least our pain level. If I can circle back to one of the first slides and the comment by the OIG that the compliance plan requires support from the top, auditing only to have changes be pushed aside is more damaging than not auditing in the first place. There must be a commitment to, to behavior modification and compliance at each level of the leadership. And within that plan, written defined next steps for anything that is defined as non-compliant. One thing I've learned in my years of physician training is to remember your audience. They are clinicians. They are not taught coding and billing in medical school. They have a head full of clinical care plans and research and concern what to do about the patient at two o'clock who isn't responding to treatment. Their focus is on exactly what we want it to be, patient care. So starting a conversation with a physician, Medicare requires, Blue Cross Blue Shield wants, almost causes instant hearing loss. The administrative burdens of practicing medicine have really reduced tolerance for what the payer wants. Physicians care about what the patient wants, what the patient needs, what the patient requires. So start there. Start by considering how your request will impact the patient, how an incomplete record may impact the patient's care by the next provider, how having the medical necessity clearly documented assists in having the payer cover the expenses, improving the patient's financial experience. How does the additional documentation communicate the severity of the patient and the extra care the patient may require? How does that additional information help define the practice within the industry metrics as a provider of excellence? If the practice was paid solely on the diagnosis information submitted today, would there be enough of a story to really compensate the provider? or impact the level of service assigned. 
Think about how documenting something as straightforward as the length of that lengthy discussion would impact that level of service. If we can frame our requests in a way that benefits the patient, the physicians will typically listen to that message a little bit longer. Just as the message is geared to the audience, the training must be as well. There are very few physicians that are going to spend an eight-hour day in a boot camp about coding. So what can you offer in a 30-minute session geared specifically with their documentation? Where can language be clarified? Where can we create a macro so that the key data elements that are routinely performed are not forgotten? Can we put it in a podcast format that they can listen to between the office and the hospital, between their home and the office, and then give them an attachment sharing individual examples? Do you have a strong physician um, with a passion for compliance that can offer some peer-to-peer -peer training on some of the more complex um, surgical documentation, for example? It's important to remember that the charge capture doesn't happen in a vacuum. The process starts at the point of registration when the appointment type is selected. The appointment type in a lot of EHRs drives the type of template that is loaded for that physician. That starts the whole process. The chief complaint, the reason the patient is being seen, is another field that is often captured at registration and merged into the progress note. Everyone needs to know enough about revenue cycle to do their job, but also to understand what happens next. What happens if the wrong insurance type is accidentally selected at the point of registration? How does that impact preauthorization? What happens when the review of systems worksheet that was completed by the patient isn't scanned into the right encounter? What happens when the pre-auth team isn't notified that there will be an assistant at surgery? Each employee on our team is a link in the chain, and each link is critical to supporting compliance. Most coders know the mantra, if it isn't documented, yep, it didn't happen. If you don't have a written compliance plan, you really don't have a compliance plan. Bits, pieces, comments by employees that are sometimes done when you have time equal good intentions. Good intentions can actually be harmful if they're not coordinated into a solid, productive, living document. There isn't specific structure. The level of detail now is going to be driven by the size of your practice. If you go online, you can Google OIG compliance plan. And whether you're a billing company or you just are responsible for the billing process, whether you're looking as a third party vendor or you have internal clients that you're doing the billing for. Either way, we want to make sure that you start with what's appropriate to your practice. So the OIG has a compliance plan for small practices, for large practices, for billing companies you're going to have a different compliance plan based on the makeup of your practice, but we can start with the skeleton that's offered online. The most important step is step one, do something. 
do something in the balance of 2018 that will demonstrate commitment to billing the right service to the right payer for the right reason on the right date of service under the correct provider. Demonstrate that repayment rules are being closely followed. It won't be perfect. It is a living document. So waiting until you have the perfect language on the perfect font in the perfect software, it won't happen. Just dive in and reach out if you have questions or you need help. Thank you for your time today. Thank you for continuing to trust coding strategies for your training and your coding and compliance needs. Have a great day. Thank you so much, Karna. Please use the contact information on the screen for any questions, attendees. And if you send us any questions, we'll forward them on to Karna. Please remember your PACOM and PMI CU certificate will be emailed to you from within two days following the broadcast. There's no need to request it. You can request for uh, future webinars or request a demo of our compliance solution on our website at firsthcc.com or call us at 888-543-4778. And thank you for joining us.